0: This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the
1: benefit of humanity. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions.
2: Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate?
1: Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers.
2: Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time.
3: I got you.
1: REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated.
2: In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years... We've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.
0: I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid. Conversations about connecting and communicating.
3: And when they came to a vote, it actually came down to one vote in the Tennessee state legislature by a guy named Harry Byrne. And on the morning that he is walking to the state legislature, uncertain about how he is going to vote, he gets a letter from his mother. And that letter from Fed Byrne, who is my heroine, says, be a good boy and vote for suffrage. As he later says, I always thought it was a good thing to do what your mother said.
4: <laughs> <laughs> the irony of that, that in order to get the right to vote, which most men didn't want them to have, they had to get men to vote for them and to vote for the right to vote. It's kind of nuts.
0: That's Lynn Schur and Ellen Goodman. It's been exactly 100 years since women officially won the right to vote. And now that a century has passed, it's possible that the story of the heroic women who won that right might be forgotten. Lynn Schur and Ellen Goodman are two celebrated journalists who are determined not to let that happen. This is such a treat to have you on today. I, I love the project that you work on. Here you get the two of the country's best communicators, working on a podcast about women's suffrage. And it's called She Votes. Is that right?
3: With an an exclamation exclamation point. point.
0: Well, I was just going to say, I hope hope there's an exclamation point.
3: (laughs) Definitely not a question mark.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, right. My voice gave it a little question mark. I I wanted to make sure I got it right. Right. So tell me about this. How, How are you handling the whole issue of women's right to vote?
3: Well, we started, interestingly enough, one of the first things Lynn and I talked about was the realization that our own mothers were born before women had the right to vote.
0: Wow. That that is, that's a, that's a striking realization.
3: I'm sure it's true for you too, Alan. Or your mother, not you. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And, um, you know, it struck us that we are about to celebrate the 100th anniversary of women's right to vote, and a lot of young women today just really don't have any sense of the history of it and the remarkable persistence of these women. You know that phrase that we've liked this year, you know, nevertheless, she persisted. I mean, they persisted.
0: They sure did. Uh, are you going back? Are you covering it from from which beginning? Because there have been many beginnings.
4: Right. Uh, there are many beginnings and i think that's one of the things that um most intrigues us about this story i mean i've been writing and and doing books about the suffrage movement for years and and only when we got involved in this did i realize that the roots are way before seneca falls in 1848 although that was a very important moment um uh, the suffrage movement really began with abolition it began with women working um with men, uh, with other women, uh, with women of color to free the enslaved people. And partly because they saw that, um, getting your rights was something that also applied to them. And partly because they suffered second class citizenry in that abolition fight. Sometimes they said, wait a minute, this is about us too. And we're going to fight for our rights. So in 18, in the 1830s, uh, a group of women started to getting, uh, started getting together, forming anti-slavery societies, because in many cases, the men would not let them participate in their anti-slavery society meetings. So the women formed their own female anti-slavery society meetings. Uh, Lucretia Mott, a wonderful Quaker woman uh, from Philadelphia, um, called a convention in 1837 of anti-slavery women. This was interracial. This was a very important first meeting of women seeking to get involved in the public conversation. So that's part of our roots. That's a big part of our roots. And then we go to 1848. There's a lot of stuff in between. In 1848, there's this um, convention that Elizabeth Cady Stanton, a 32-year-old housewife, and Lucretia Mott sort of cook up together. And this is to talk about all of women's rights. This is to talk about the right to um, uh, have your own salary. This is to talk about rights that just didn't exist. Women had nothing. And the one right that was inserted into their declaration in Seneca Falls that had never really been done in a public way before was the right to vote. This was radical. This was seen by some as ridiculous But there it was, and from then on, the movement really began.
0: And I was very aware of that in 1983, while we were still trying to get the Equal Rights Amendment passed, and she had formulated, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, had formulated the first resolution for it. And around that time, word came to me that Elizabeth Cady Stanton's house was going to be demolished and turned into some, I don't know, a hot dog stand or something. I don't know what.
3: (laughs) Pave paradise, put up a parking lot.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And and what would save it was $11,000 to pay off the mortgage, and then it could become a national park. In fact... All of Seneca Falls, I think, was designated a national park. So Arlene and I came up with the $11,000.
4: What you did is extraordinary because I don't know when the last time you were at that park, but Ellen and I went up there with our producer and we recorded, and it's part of uh, one of our episodes. It's a big part of one of our episodes, a bunch of school, uh, high school kids, Going through the tour, kids who knew nothing about this and through the to, house,
0: going through the house.
4: No, not the Elizabeth Cady Stanton House, but the rest of the park to see oh, where they met at that Wesleyan Chapel, right? Yeah, yeah. So you you started something that really took off, and and I just want to point out you you don't know um, uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton's house might have been lost to a hot dog stand. Uh, Women's Rights National Historical Park has kept the Wesleyan Chapel, which originally had been turned into a laundromat.
0: A laundromat. <laughs> and, a, and a coin-operated laundromat.
4: <laughs> Tells you something about the priorities for women, does it not? <laughs> <laughs>
0: right. Well, maybe somebody thought it was appropriate. Oh, yeah, you
4: know?
3: Unfortunately, <laughs> appropriate. But, but it was we interesting. When,
0: when this proposal was made to, to make it a national park, some people were so against it that there was a local bar that put a card in its window that said, a Men's Hall of Fame.
3: Mm. Well, you know... And
0: that, but by by the time it happened, there were thousands of people in the street cheering it on. They got the idea. I think they realized a lot of people would be coming and spending money.
3: That's true. And it was remarkable when we were up there, too, to see um, it, that one of the things that we sort of think is that the right to vote was inevitable. Oh, my goodness, of course, women were going to get the right to vote. And it wasn't inevitable. It was not inevitable at all. And it took incredible amount of time and organizing. And I have to tell you my favorite Elizabeth Cady Santon story since she was the one who literally wrote the resolutions. Um, but when she was a kid, Her father was a lawyer and she got so pissed off that about the laws against women that she went and she was like 11 and she pulled her father's books down from the shelves and took a scissors and cut the laws literally out of the books.
0: She was eleven.
3: <laughs> she was about eleven, I think. And, and wow,
0: isn't that great?
3: And um, you know, she later came to figure out a better way to approach this. But it's, <laughs> it, it's 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 really amazing.
4: You know, Alan, I also have to say, you're. Your prescience in getting involved in this, and your ability to understand that in that wonderful glorious Steinem line uh, women's rights are men's rights too, is so unusual because because most men at the time, and dare I say it even today, didn't want to share power, didn't want to give up anything they had. The idea that women were going to come into this uh, political scene, into the public space and get involved was so threatening to some men. And, and bravo to you for having that feeling.
0: Yeah, I, I don't need so, so many bravos. I just did what I thought was right. But I think it's really a good idea. And I'm, I'm curious to know what you both feel as concerned women. I think it's really important to gather as many male allies as possible, and there are plenty out there.
3: Well, let's be honest about how suffrage was eventually passed. The only way to pass suffrage was to convince men, because women couldn't vote. <laughs> so that they had to, over time, convince men, male state legislatures, male congressional uh, legislators, to vote for women's rights. So it took a long time and a lot of social change and a lot of politicking to get men um, to pass this amendment. The irony of that, that in order
4: to get the right to vote, which most men didn't want them to have, they had to get men to vote for them and to vote for the right to vote. It's kind of nuts.
3: You were talking about the Equal Rights Amendment and a talk, we're thinking about the women who were opposed the Equal Rights Amendment. To me, it's always been astounding that there would be this split, that women would oppose their own rights. But in the story of suffrage, there is this huge wave of women, this huge number of women who opposed their own right to vote and had to be c- convinced into that as well.
0: What was their argument?
3: Some of it was the same arguments as the men had used because they bought into uh, the same story, the cult of true womanhood, what exactly a woman should be. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, 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 then a lot of them were afraid of the same social changes that the, say, the Phyllis Schlafly uh, numbers were afraid of, uh, that, that sense that women uh, had their own agency felt scary to them. They called it the burden of the ballot, which tells you quite
4: a lot. They were scared of their responsibility, believe it or not. Um, They also didn't want, Ellen talked about this awful thing called the cult of true womanhood, this kind of dopey um, fake uh, image of, of what women were supposed to be, very what were the, the the four P's, Ellen? Pious and uh, not the four P's. It was pious, and um, you had to uh, obey your husband. All this kind of silly stuff. You had to be and pure. There were Don't some women purity, Lynn. Purity. Don't I forgot purity. purity. <laughs> Why would I forget purity? But I did. Um, <laughs> and, um, they did not, Ellen. They did not want to come down from the pedestal. There were uh. some women who were privileged, who were who were supported by their husbands, who didn't have to work for a living. And they liked being up on a pedestal and they feared that equality would make them not on the pedestal. And that was a, a come down they were not ready for.
3: Or a lot of it was religion too. They bought into sort of the religious ideology, the, the Bible, the Bible saying what women's place were. And they'd been, to my view, brainwashed into saying that they were second-class citizens, or they didn't have that God had ordained. We have some wonderful quotes from the uh, from the clergy of the time talking about that God had ordained their place, and that all of these suffragists were trying to upend the divinely ordained order of the world. And the order of the world was that women were in second
4: place always.
0: Right. And they probably had all, the married women had probably all sworn at the ceremony to love, honor, and obey.
3: Absolutely. That was routinely, that was put in, this never worked out for us, (laughs) (laughs) by the way.
4: (laughs) Well, don't forget, at the time, uh, one of the women involved in the suffrage movement, uh, Lucy Stone, is the woman who originally publicly chose not to take her husband's name when they got married. Uh, she made a big deal about the fact that her name was her name, and she. this is 18-something. And a, a 19th century, early 19th century woman saying, nope, not taking your name. We take this for granted today. You make your own choice. You want to take your husband's name? Fine. You don't? Fine. Um, she didn't, and it was headlines all over the place.
0: There were, there were terms that were used in a derogatory way that fed right into the use of stereotypes to keep women on the pedestal or not, at least not up from the pedestal. Like suffragi- suffragists was, was from uh, and the inside word, the outside word was suffragettes.
4: Right. Yeah, That's it was a put down. Lynn, you, it hit, was
3: that, th- you hit Lynn's favorite.
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, it makes me crazy. Um, the suffragette was actually sort of, uh, uh, it was used as a put down, you know, astronet, do we call our female astronauts yeah. astronauts? <laughs> My friend Sally Ride would have been really pissed at that one. But um, um, the term the term is suffragist. Thank you very much, Alan. Uh, and suffragette actually gained some traction in um, England over across the pond and the the, the very militant suffrage uh, leaders there decided to adopt it. So suffragette over there became the sign of the militants. They were the ones who really did some nasty stuff. And in this country, there were some women in the early 1900s who came from England and American women who had seen what was going on over there and they wanted to be called suffragettes. But most of the women in this country Preferred suffragist, and that is the that is the um,
3: that's the term we're going with. I have to add that there were some enemies of suffrage who we should now you know put a pin in. Uh, for example, the New York Times opposed woman suffrage again and again and again in multiple. Oh my god, I'm canceling
0: my subscription. <laughs> <laughs> You were talking about how after Seneca Falls, it wasn't just automatic that they got the vote. And I remember stories about how they went on hunger strikes, how they were put in jail and in jail went on hunger strikes and then were force fed with tubes. There there was real physical abuse.
4: Well, that was that was in the 1900s. And that was while Woodrow Wilson was president, who uh, Wilson at first uh, refused to endorse uh, and support suffrage. Um, And there were women, these were the militant women, um, led by a woman named Alice Paul, and a bunch of them had been in England, and they actually did like to call themselves, some of them, suffragettes. But yes, they picketed the White House silently. They called themselves Silent Sentinels. They held these ginormous signs that said, Mr. President, why must we wait? Uh, a, A recurring theme in this fight for suffrage. And um, they were arrested, a number of them. They were sent to jail, and they were force-fed. And interestingly, the coverage, the news coverage of their being force-fed and um, and what happened to them in that jail, hideous circumstances, is partly what helped turn public opinion so that the public was more on the side of suffrage at that point.
3: I think the other thing that is so interesting is we tend to forget about the importance of one vote, and you were talking, Alan, about the Equal Rights Amendment and how we lost that amendment in the eighty in the nineteen eighties, and here we were at twenty at nineteen twenty, in need of one more state in order to pass suffrage
4: to ratify that,
3: the amendment to ratify the nineteenth amendment. And it all came down to Tennessee, not the most promising state for a woman's suffrage, to put it mildly. And when they came to a vote, it actually came down to one vote in the Tennessee state legislature by a guy named Harry Byrne. And we tell this fabulous story of... Because Harry Byrne was a state legislator and it's coming down to the vote and there are incredible pressures on both sides. And on the morning that he is walking to the state legislator, uncertain about how he is going to vote, he gets a letter from his mother, literally As he's walking to the state legislature and that letter from Fed Byrne, who is my heroine, says, (laughs) be a good boy and vote for suffrage. And he takes that letter and he goes and votes for suffrage as he later says, I always thought it was a good thing to do what your, to do what your mother said. <laughs> <laughs> so it was one state, one vote. We call
4: that episode Mother Knows Best. Yes, right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and Lynn and Ellen were able to get an extraordinary actor to play the part of Harry Byrne in their podcast, Here he is speaking Harry Byrne's own words from 100 years ago. I knew that a mother's advice is always safest for a boy to follow, and my mother wanted me to vote for ratification. I appreciated the fact that an opportunity such as seldom comes to a mortal man to free 17 million women from political slavery was mine. Amazing impersonation. It sounds exactly like Harry Byrne. When we come back from our break, Lynn and Ellen talk about how the stories of the struggle for women's suffrage still resonate today. Our program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation with a mission to advance science for the benefit of humanity. The foundation's mission is implemented internationally through a constellation of Kavli institutes that support scientists who conduct basic curiosity driven research in astrophysics, theoretical physics, nanoscience, and neuroscience, and also by the Kavli Prize, which honors scientists for breakthroughs in these fields that transform our understanding of the very big, astrophysics, the very small, nanoscience, and the very complex, neuroscience. And the mission of the Kavli Foundation is also implemented by programs that support public engagement with science. Enhancing how society encounters, interacts with science, and uses science in their daily lives. I want to thank all of you who have signed up to support Clear and Vivid on Patreon. It really helps us to bring you conversations with some of the most interesting people out there. Along with our sponsors, you make Clear and Vivid possible. If you haven't become a patron yet, here's how it works. If you visit patreon.com slash clearandvivid, You can subscribe for as little as $2 a month to get advanced news about coming shows and get listed on our virtual wall of generous benefactors, and there's even a modest bit of swag. If you go for a higher level of support, there's a lot of fun stuff coming your way. Videos and audio clips of moments with our guests that were fascinating but didn't make it into the show. Bonus episodes of behind-the-scenes chat as my producer Graham Chet and I put the shows together. Plus, for our top subscribers, a monthly video conference with me. That's been a wonderful experience. I love meeting the thoughtful, engaged people who listen to our podcast. And I'll even record a personalized voicemail message for your mobile phone. If you'd like to know more, just go to patreon.com clearandvivid. And remember, you don't have to become a patron to keep listening to the show. You can continue to listen for free. But you can get an awful lot of fun extras if you do become a subscriber. And most importantly, your patronage directly funds our work with the Alda Center for Communicating Science. So join us at patreon.com slash clearandvivid. That's patreon.com slash clearandvivid.
3: Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney Bundle with new movies and series. On Disney+, Plus, experience the full Taylor Swift The Era's Tour, Taylor's version, with new main show performances and acoustic collection. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone in the award-winning film Poor Things. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney
2: Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details.
1: When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions.
2: Can we even afford to buy a house right now?
0: This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Ellen Goodman and Lynn Schur.
4: One of the people we interviewed, um, I'm just going to read this because, um, pardon my my shuffling of papers, uh, Paula Giddings, a longtime uh, professor at Smith College, um, said a wonderful thing. She said, if you understand the women's suffrage movement in all of its complexity, you understand this country. Mm. And she's so right, because everything was an issue in this fight it was about gender it was about race it was about equality it was about liberty it was about the meaning of citizenship every little thing is there and that's why it's important and that's why we wanted to do it
3: i have to tell you too that we've made discoveries of of just people we came to adore (laughs) oh tell tell me about (laughs) that well (laughs) I, I, I have to tell my favorite, Lynn. You can then tell yours. My favorite was a woman called Alice Dewar Miller. And, of course, I loved her because she was a newspaper columnist. Which, <laughs> 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 it's the story of my life. So Alice Dewar Miller wrote a column starting in 1915 um, in the New York Tribune. And it was a column of poems in which she, what she did Wait, was wait, she, wait. I have to interrupt. Tell them what it was called. Oh. The name of her column was Our Women People. And
4: Alan, this theme, Our Women People, runs throughout the entire podcast because the story of suffrage is the story of women saying, we're people, treat us like people. Wow.
3: Yeah. And anyway, Alice, um, what she would do, she was the John Stewart of her era. And what she would do is she would take something that had been said by a powerful leader and turn it on its head, uh, Lynn. You probably can remember one or two of the examples of. Yeah, this is the one. I think the
4: one you like is from um, Senator. Uh, there was a senator from North Carolina, and he said, and I quote, "I am opposed to woman suffrage, but I am not opposed to woman.
0: <laughs> that was his quote. <laughs> okay. Right. So and, and, if, if, any, and so if anybody's Alice- free tonight.
3: Oh wait! Right. Right. And then so Alice says. Alice writes. I love this. Alice writes, Oh, women, have you heard the news of charity and grace? Look, look, how joy and gratitude are beaming in my face, for Mr. Webb is not opposed to woman in her place. <laughs> <laughs> we love
4: Alice. Can we can we just tell you our favorite Alice poem, our very favorite Alice, uh, Alice Dewar Miller poem from her column, Our Women People? Uh, The poem goes like it's a it's a little conversation, tiny little conversation between a little girl and her mom. And I'll be the little girl um, and I'll start. And so here's how the poem goes.
3: Mother, what is a feminist? A feminist, my daughter, is any woman now who cares to think about her own affairs, as men don't think she ought her. <laughs> I t- have to tell you that as Lynn and I were trying to do this poem in the podcast, we, we were trying to do the last line together. <laughs> you know, and we couldn't. We, we just kept cracking up. So there's a, there's a lot of laughter. Real. It's so
4: great. Any woman now who cares to think about her own affairs as men don't think she ought to? Oh my That's God. Don't you terrific. love this one? It's terrific. <laughs>
0: Have you learned some stuff in researching this that you oh, yeah. didn't know and didn't expect to hear?
4: Huh. Oh, absolutely. I want to say that the biggest thing, and I, of course we knew this, but we didn't see it so, so strikingly. The biggest thing is that women are not all of a piece. Mm. We're all different. You can't say the word woman or women and include every woman in the United States or on this planet. Not only are we different sizes and shapes and colors and ethnicities, that's obvious. We feel differently about a lot of things. And this is one of the reasons why there, until recently, hasn't been much of a women's block in voting. You can't and couldn't certainly from the beginning count on uh, uh, the woman's vote. We started to see it uh, when Bill Clinton was elected. We certainly see it in the difference in the way of parties vote. But women are different. The very fact that that some women didn't buy into the sisterhood is powerful theme that we all feel so strongly about, um, shows that. They they you can't just say women and think you're you're getting us all.
2: Yeah.
3: Yeah. Um I I think we found that in the in the episodes that we did about how sisterhood isn't always powerful, <laughs> which showed Uh, Women who oppose suffrage just the way the women oppose the feminist movement of the 19 of of the the second wave feminist movement. And those other little, those other pretty depressing realities that a plurality of white women did not vote for Hillary. So you find these political moments that are both uh, energizing and exciting, uh, and those that are disheartening. And the reality that this goes on forever. I think the other thing that we became, um, this is not new to us, but we became so uh, rabid (laughs) about the need to vote, both because it's out of respect for what these women went through, but also out of an understanding that the only way to create social change in our democracy that lasts is to vote and then vote again and vote again. And a lot of young women, or I should say a lot of young people, uh, feel, oh, well, it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't make change. But it is, in fact, the only thing that ever does. I believe this year could
4: very well be very different. I think the combination of the Me Too movement and Black Lives Matter. I am calling this the year of the angry moms. And I think angry moms may well be um, a huge deciding factor in the presidential election and in the House and Senate elections as well.
3: And I think that anniversary is a great moment to celebrate. It's interesting because the anniversary will come right at the same time as the conventions, right at the same time that Biden is... Um, going to be appointing a or uh, n- nominating a woman for vice president again. All of uh, and these we're talking things, about,
4: uh, let's just make clear, we're talking about August 26th is the day that I'm the sorry, ratification, yes. that the amendment went into effect. The so actual, the 19th Amendment went into effect on August 26th, 1920.
3: The, that's the actual date. And all of these things are happening to celebrate um, suffrage and... And that's a kind of, that's a great moment. And it's a great moment to really look at what we have left to do.
0: Well, I'm so glad you're doing this podcast to bring to light for the present generations who may not be aware of it. The history behind this, the effort, the struggle that women have the right to vote. And boy, I hope they use it. I hope everybody who has yeah. the right to vote uses it, whether they vote against me or for me, the things that I believe in. I want to see people voting.
4: Oh, I and thought he, for a minute you were announcing that you were running. No, when for I something. say against me, I mean
0: against the things I go, <laughs> things I'm interested in. I know that came out came out really weird. <laughs> well, no, like,
4: well, you, so you can know. I? Can I just get one plug in because our producers will be really annoyed if oh. I don't say that our podcast is called "She Votes!" Exclamation point. Uh, our battle for the ballot. There are eight episodes. In each episode, we tell a piece of the suffrage story. It's roughly chronological, but it's more about um, individual stories and moments in, in the suffrage movement. You will learn the whole story uh, by listening to our podcast, but um, you'll, you'll, go, you'll go down deep in a few areas and there'll be lots that you can more that you can find out for yourself. And essentially what we do is go from the early 1800s Uh, through 1920, right up to today, when even though the 19th Amendment passed and um, forbade states from uh, keeping women from voting, plenty did. So we still have our work cut out for us. The suffrage movement began very early in the beginning of this country, and it continues today. So that's what we're doing. And I I also want to mention we have a lot of interviews with historians and 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 good people um we have a very special piece of our of our podcast which is um Christine Baranski is the voice of Susan B Anthony and she does a baffo job of being Susan uh through one of the most extraordinary stories which is when Susan B Anthony was arrested for the crime of voting while female back in 1872.
0: That's great. Now look, this we could go on talking all day as you as you can figure, you can gather from the fun we've had. but we've come to an end but at the end of our shows what we do is ask seven quick questions. Okay, you ready? you can answer them in any order and that is to say either one of you can answer first. First question, what do you wish you really understood?
3: Black holes. <laughs> Why people don't vote in their own interest.
0: The, each of those questions is equally puzzling. <laughs> 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 How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong?
3: Preferably preferably not by shrieking at them that they're <laughs> idiots. <laughs> and preferably not on social media. But by actually listening and talking to someone else which is something that your whole podcast is about communicating listening and talking i was
4: going to say that this is the reason why i will never be an ambassador or a member of the diplomatic corps
0: <laughs> you just
4: <laughs> but ellen's right but the answer is listening the the way you tell anybody anything is by listening
0: what's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you
4: Lynn. Oh, I'm thinking. I'm thinking. Can we come back to that? Sounds like, uh,
0: we sounds like that was the strangest question.
4: Yeah, it sounds that like, way, doesn't it? The strangest. Uh, yeah, I'll tell you what the strangest question is. Is uh, when I was at ABC News and people would say, where do you get your ideas? <laughs> oh right, of course. <laughs> <laughs>
3: by living! The answer is by living! <laughs> People used to do that for to calmness all the time, and I think Art Buchwald had one of those great responses to that, where we would go into great detail about, you know, he, he reached into the pot on his... <laughs> he reached into the <laughs> pencils on his desktop.
0: <laughs> I <was just> <laughs> get, to get <laughs> ideas. Uh, how, how do you stop a compulsive talker?
3: I... Uh, if you're lucky, you hang up.
0: <laughs> if you're on the phone.
4: <laughs> what? If you're on the phone. <laughs> I have found that yawning works. Does
0: it? Yeah, well, you know, some, somebody just mentioned that to me yesterday. And it, I remembered that it worked on me when I was a young man and a and much more compulsive talker than I am now.
4: <laughs> I've actually resorted to having friends uh, call me at a designated time if I know I'm going to be with someone I don't oh, want to be with. Oh, I
0: never heard that one. That's pretty good. <laughs> How about you, Ellen?
4: Oh, I'm so sorry. My phone's ringing. Got yes. to run.
0: My grandmother. Here's
4: the problem, though, Ellen, during during the lockdown, during the virus, you can't say, I'm sorry, I have to leave now. I have an appointment outside <laughs> <Right>. the house. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs>
3: Doesn't work. Right. Right. right.
0: Okay, you're at a dinner party sitting next to someone you don't know. How do you start up a real conversation with that person?
3: Well, right now you'd have to take off your mask, <laughs> so that wouldn't work.
0: <laughs> yeah, I hope you take off your mask <laughs> to get the food in. <laughs> yeah,
3: exactly. That would
4: be it. Um, how do you know the host and hostess?
0: Uh huh. And 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 that—that's a question. Right, and that gets you.
4: That gets you started. Oh, yeah. we went to school together. Oh, we just did this. Really? Why do you do that? That was a kind of a serious answer, but it's it No works. no,
0: they should all they should yeah. all be serious.
3: I, I I'd go even more serious. I think, you know, what matters to you?
0: Yeah, that's great. They both they both work. One can lead to the other. Yeah. What gives you confidence?
4: Today's younger generation. I'm so impressed with so many of them. Not all of them. But I see. I see a concern and a care that I I wouldn't have predicted was there. And that gives me some hope.
3: And I would add our generation, too, because, you know, as as an older American, that remarkable gift of time that we have had of an extra 30 years that uh, Americans didn't have a century ago and that. Belief in, that you have to have, and you can have a sense of purpose all the way through to your to the end of your life, and that part of that purpose is to communicate with younger people, to have uh, to not be you know pushed aside, to not be uh, a know it all, to not, do not denigrate what younger people are thinking about. But to pass that on, I mean, that is part of the richness of having decided to do this podcast, that we want to pass on our experiences and those of our mothers and foremothers to another generation. And that is, it seems to me, what you do. You know, there's that old line, you know, uh, uh, that you plant a tree for the next generation because somebody else planted a tree for you. That
0: leads to our last question. What book changed your life?
3: Lynn, you probably, you're the classicist in this. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) I guess I I have two
4: answers. Um, One is the Iliad, which I reread regularly because the Iliad taught me more about war than anything I could ever hope to read. It still makes me cry. But, I have to say, the history of women's suffrage, all yeah. six volumes, <laughs> made me appreciate who these women were, and some men, what they were up against, and how in the world they did it. It's not complete. It wasn't meant to be complete. There's lots more to the story, but it's a, it's a great read.
3: And I would add, I belong to a book club that we call ourselves the Swiss cheese book. Club Why? Because, because we decided to read books that were holes in our education. Uh. And was, they were either books that we had never read or we couldn't remember if we'd read them, same thing. And uh, we have gone back and read some of the most rewarding books, that some of which had just sort of disappeared, uh, uh, starting with, Starting with Steinbeck, uh, and we're currently reading Wallace Stegner, and we've read a lot of uh, women authors in between, um, and uh, uh, the unknown Edith Wharton books. So to me, it isn't one book. It's more going back and having that rich uh, legacy from so many authors. So, Swiss Cheese is, is my book. <laughs>
0: well, that thank you both for such a terrific conversation. I had such a good time with you both.
3: We did too. Thanks
4: but, to you, Alan. Thank you. It was great. And we know that you always vote.
0: <laughs> you, you said it. I'll be listening. <laughs> this has been Clear and Vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid, up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Ellen Goodman is a Pulitzer Prize-winning columnist for the Boston Globe and Washington Post. She's the author of seven books and the founder of The Conservation Project. Her friend of 50 years is Lynn Schur, an award-winning longtime correspondent with ABC News and the author of 10 books, including Failure is Impossible, Susan B. Anthony in her own words. Their podcast, She Votes, Our Battle for the Ballot, is now available on your favorite platform. Its website is shevotespodcast.com. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shed, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen.
2: In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities.
0: Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Max Tegmark. He tells me about how to shape the awesome power of artificial intelligence in ways that empower us, not threaten us.
2: Pretty much everything in our society was created with human intelligence, right? Everything, so if we can amplify our intelligence with machine intelligence, we can also apply it to basically all aspects of our life. And the first thing we should worry about is not, by the way, the machine taking over the world, but we should worry about who controls those first machines. Think about your least favorite political leader, just for a moment. Don't tell me who it is. We can keep this apolitical. But just now imagine that that person is the first to have control over this incredibly intelligent machine so they can impose their will on everyone else. How does that make you feel?
0: Max Tegmark, doing his best to make us feel better about artificial intelligence